All right, well, I'm, I'm very excited to be here today. Thank you so much for having me. Pastor Joel, thanks a lot for the invitation. Um, uh, yes, like Pastor Joel said, we go way back in ministry, and so we know enough about each other to know all of the things that are funny and great and awesome about each other, but we also know like, oh yeah, these are the things we got to work on. So <laughs> if you want to get the real dirt on Pastor Joel, just talk to me today. I can fill you in. No, but honestly, I, I love Pastor Joel, and I love serving uh, on staff with him at Daybreak, and I've loved continuing to uh, carry on our friendship in the days afterwards. So thank you, Pastor Joel, for the invitation. And I also just want to say, if you aren't already aware, I'm just so excited for your church that you have Pastor Joel to lead you through this transition because he is absolutely the best at what he does. So you're very, very fortunate to have him here. And I know he feels very fortunate to be here as well. So thanks for the chance uh, that I have today to hang out with you and talk a little bit about what I feel like God might want to say to us today. Uh, I want to give you a little bit of just kind of backstory on me uh, and kind of where I've been through up to this point. Got a couple of slides that are going to help you get to know me. The first slide you're going to see is from some of my youth ministry days. So you see a few pictures up there. I've got a mission trip down in the corner where I'm wearing a blue shirt. Yes, that child is alive. Okay, in case you were wondering, he's just sleeping. He's sleeping. That's all that's going on there. I uh, got a couple other pictures up there, but I, I did uh, church ministry for over 20 years. Uh, most of that was spent in student ministry, some full-time, some part-time, but I still have a heart for students. It's just that instead of being a youth pastor for a group of other people's kids, I am now youth pastor to my kids. <laughs> we, have a, we have a few students that are, I've got four kids, two of which are in middle school and high school, and a, a third that's going to be in middle school next year, and the other one's younger, and you'll, you'll meet them in a minute on the screen. So that's where my heart is at. I still have a heart for students, but I've also really grown to love these environments too. Uh, I just really enjoy being with people on a Sunday morning and preaching God's word. So I'm excited to be here today. Uh, Pastor Joel also mentioned the next slide here. You're going to see what I've been up to since I got out of full-time ministry. And we started a food truck. It's called Dad's Famous Cold Brew and sweet treats. And if you guys are extra nice to me today, maybe sometime I'll come back with my trailer and you can try out some of the amazing stuff. So you see a few of the things we do there. Uh, it's really, really good stuff. We specialize in cold brew coffee, but also cold brew teas. A lot of people don't know you can get really good teas when you cold brew it. And we do candied pecans and now we're adding bakery items. So homemade chocolate chip cookies. I'm making you guys want to leave and get something to eat right now. You're going to have to hang with me for just a few minutes. So the next slide that you'll see is my family. That's a picture there of me and my wife, Laurie. She's here with me today. And then three of our four kids are here today. So you'll see Noah and then Kenzie and Dylan and Carly. The two in the middle there, Kenzie and Dylan, that's my high schooler and my middle schooler. Carly's going to be in middle school next year. And Noah's currently in second grade. Uh, and my wife and I are just having a whole lot of fun raising our kids and also enduring some of the crazy days, right? Parents, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yes, yes. I heard some verbal confirmation. Yes, parents know what I'm talking about. Now, one of the best things about being a dad for me, this is me personally, but one of the things I enjoy most is I have literally waited my entire life to be able to tell dad jokes. Like, I love dad jokes. And anybody can say a dad joke, but it really doesn't count as a dad joke until you have crossed that line and you are actually a dad, then you are. You absolutely can tell dad jokes. So I've been wanting to tell those for years, and I'm just excited to do it. I love doing that with my kids, and I love hearing them groan 
when it's a particularly bad one. Like, that's almost the pure joy of it. Like, if they laugh, it's like, oh, <laughs> they laughed. But if they groan, like, that's when you know you've really hit on a good dad joke. So I thought I would start off today, give you a way to get to know me a little bit better, a top 10 list of some of my favorite dad jokes. So this might, if you need a clue as to how to respond, just watch my kids in the back row. If they groan, just groan along with them. Or if they laugh, maybe you'll think it's funny too. So number 10 on my list of top 10 dad jokes, what happens when it rains cats and dogs? You have to be careful not to step in a poodle. See that? Uh, Good mix. That's a good start. That's a good start. All right, number nine. I never trust stairs. They're always up to something. Oh, that was literally all groans. All right, we're headed in the right direction here. Number eight. My wife asked me the other day where I got so much candy. I said, I always have a few Twix up my sleeve. That's good. You got to admit to that one. You should be laughing. All right. This, this is a Bible one, okay? This is related to the Bible. You guys are going to like this. You'll like this connection. What kind of person was Boaz before he got married? He was ruthless. Yeah, that's good. That's good stuff right there. What do you call a hippie's wife? Mississippi. Number five, an apple a day keeps the doctor away, but only if you throw hard enough. Number four... <laughs> This should be at one, honestly. Number four, I was addicted to the hokey pokey, but I turned myself around. (laughs) Number three, I never wanted a beard, but it grew on me. Number two, I hate it when people say that age is just a number. Age is clearly a word. (laughs) Some of you guys are still trying to figure that out. Number one, when does a dad joke become a dad joke? when it becomes apparent. (laughs) So yeah, uh, you guys reacted exactly the same way my kids do. Half of you are like, this guy is funny. And half of you is like, who's going to be here next week? Let's, um, but as a father of four, I get lots of practice annoying my kids, but really it's, it's their just desserts, right? Because they like to annoy me too. (laughs) They like to make things difficult for me too. They know how to push my buttons. And most often they do that when I take a phone call. Parents, you know what I'm talking about? Like the room could be completely silent. Everybody's busy doing their own thing. The moment someone calls me or I call them, all four of my kids have to talk to me at that moment. You know, two of them will be yelling, dad, dad, dad. The other two will be fighting. Like, it's just immediate. The moment I get on a phone call, my kids want to talk to me. And I am like a one person at a time kind of guy. I can only do one task at a time. I am not a multitasker. So I can either have the phone conversation or the kid conversation. I can't have both. My wife, though, she's amazing because she can actually have the phone conversation while also communicating non-verbally with the kids around her. Not only that, when she gets off the phone, she will know the full content of every conversation that has happened around her during the course of the phone call. Whereas I'll get off and go, what, what happened? I'm not even really sure what you guys were saying to me. Now that might tell you something about me, and that is that I like things simple. Like, I like my conversations one at a time. You know, I'm not good at focusing on a lot of things all at once. And this really even applies to my relationship with God. 
when it comes to the things that I explore about God, when it comes to times of exploring the Bible, I like to take time and focus on just a passage or sometimes even just a scripture and really ask God, God, can you unlock the meaning of this for my life? Now, my favorite thing is when I find truths that are in scripture that are both simple and yet also profound. Simple and profound. So it's a simple enough concept that I can understand it right off the bat, but there's also a depth to it that is just remarkable, that you look at it and go, man, this is so simple, and yet it is so powerful. It's so great and so intense. It's simple, and yet it's also powerful. And there's things that we can learn about God that are so simple in their initial explanation, but then the depth of them, they're so huge when you really think about all that that means. And so that's really what I'm trying to get into today with you, is that the things I'm going to teach you today are simple, and yet they're so profound. They have the opportunity for such power to change the direction of your life and to change how you feel about yourself, how you feel about the people around you. And it really does blow my mind when I think about God, when you just think about the concept of God, that there is a God that created the universe, created everything we can see, and yet he still loves me. Think about that for yourself. God created the entire universe, and yet he is also intimately connected to you. I mean, that is simple, and yet it is profound. It is powerful. It's incredible. God of the universe, real and personal relationship with you. Remember when you were in grade school and you had your first crush? Like, I remember it still. Fourth grade, there was a girl in my class. Her name is Amanda Archibald. And I knew I was in love. So I did what fourth graders do when they're in love. I sat down and I wrote a note. And the note said, Amanda, comma, I like you. Do you like me? And then what did I put after that? Check yes or check no. Two boxes was going to determine the love of my life. I knew it. I knew this was a very important moment. And I, of course, did not hand the note to her directly. I handed it to a friend, and that friend took it to a friend of hers, and then that friend delivered it to Amanda Archibald. And I sat across the room waiting, just hoping that it was going to be a checked yes moment for me, right? So we go through the process. The note is then returned to me, and I open up the note, and I read it, and sure enough, checked yes. I'm like, all right, this is it. Life is different from here on out. Amanda Archibald checked yes. And then I got another note a little bit later in the day said, Matt, it's not working out, Amanda. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Thank you, Amanda. I mean, I thought the direction of my life had changed. I loved her, you know, but that checked yes moment, it was so great. The moment after, not so good. (laughs) The checked yes moment was incredible. There is something incredible about that moment where somebody says they'll check yes. And if you were able to write a letter to God in this moment, and you put at the end of that letter, God, do you love me? Check yes or check no. God would check yes. Absolutely. No matter what you have done, no matter what your past looks like, no matter what your present looks like, no matter what baggage you carry along with you, God checks yes. God checks yes for you. He loves you intimately. So that relation didn't quite work out for me, but the initial joy of that checked yes moment is so awesome. It's that feeling that someone likes me enough 
to check yes. It's awesome. And yet, life doesn't always feel like a checked yes moment, does it? Like, we might know in our heads that yes, God checks yes for me. He loves me. He wants to be in relationship with me. But we struggle to believe it. You know, we want to believe it, but we struggle to. Because we all make so many mistakes, right? It's hard for us to wrap our minds around the idea that, well, even though I make all of these mistakes, even though I don't do the things that I say I want to do, I do the opposite of that, it's hard to believe that God still loves me anyway. And you know what? This is a universal struggle. So no matter who you are this morning, I'm sure there's some of you in the church today that you have a long history of a solid walk with Jesus, that you've, met, you've been connected with him for a very long time. You've allowed him to lead your life. And yet there are also moments where you feel so ashamed of the decisions that you've made that you wonder, how could a perfect God still love somebody like me? But you also might be here far from God. You're just starting to explore what it might mean to engage in a life relationship with Jesus Christ, to know what it would be like to walk with him on a daily basis. This might be one of the things that keeps you from stepping across that line of faith. That you think, how could a God that created the universe love me? He doesn't know me. He doesn't know all of the mistakes that I've made. And you think, no, I just can't do it. I can't come to God when I have so many things I need to work on. There's a comedian that I listened to growing up. And one of the things he said that always stuck with me is he talked about he had after a show one night he was talking to a guy and the guy that he was talking to said hey do I have to get my life right in order to get connected to Jesus and he said no and he said wait let me ask you again do I need to get my life right before I invite Jesus to lead my life and he says no he says it a third time and then this guy responds to him and says you know what do you have to go take a bath before you can be clean do you have to go take a bath before you can be clean. No, you just have to allow Jesus to make that change in your heart and he's going to clean you up. You don't have to take a bath before the bath. He just cleans you up in that moment. And so it's a pretty cool thing that God does when we invite him to lead us as we get rid of all of that stuff. We let that go and God cleans us up. We don't have to clean ourselves up first. You know, as humans, we get stuck sometimes in that place. We get stuck between the promise that God loves us and the doubt that he truly could with all of our mistakes. We get stuck there, and we wonder how God could truly be this good. In fact, as humans, we often have a hard time fully describing the nature of God. Even the greatest writers and theologians run short of the words to say to describe his incredible nature. Thomas Aquinas is a 13th century priest and theologian, and he had spent all of his life writing out all of these pages on theology and the nature of God. And he eventually came to the point where he had this quote. This is the thing that he wrote, is that he said, I can write no more. All my words are like straw. So one of these great theologians that had written all of these words about who God is, even he couldn't fully describe who God is. In other words, who can fully describe a God this great? What words could possibly be used to properly capture who he is. He's this incredible, indescribable God, and yet he loves you. He checks yes. It's kind of hard to believe. So no matter what you've done this day, this week, this year, you are loved by God. If you feel like you don't deserve it, you are loved. If you feel like God has been silent for a long time, you are loved. If you've been running from God, 
you are loved. If you feel like you don't matter, if you feel like you're invisible, if you feel like you're incapable, if you feel like you're an outsider, if you feel like a lost cause, you are loved. You are loved by him. And God wants to remind you of that today. That's the simple and yet profound truth is that God wants to remind you today of how much he loves you. So when you start to feel stuck in this place of recognizing God loves you, but also feeling like, man, I make so many mistakes. How could he? When you feel stuck in that place, here's what God says to you. First of all, he says to you, I'm with you. When you feel stuck, God says, I'm with you. God is with you. Regardless of how you feel about him, he is with you. He sees what you're going through, and you are not alone. He continually pursues you. He desires to have an intimate relationship with you. He knows you inside and out. He's not distant. He did not just spin the earth in orbit and then step back and watch it all happen. He is intimately connected to you. He loves you. He understands you. He knows you. And he still loves you. Even with all the faults, all the mistakes, he still loves you. So this morning, we're going to look at a small scene from the life of Moses And it's found in Exodus 3 that illustrates the personal nature of God. Now you can follow along in your Bibles today if you have those. You can also follow along on the screen or use your digital Bible if that's the way that you follow along. Wherever you'd like to is completely fine with me. But we're going to be in Exodus chapter 3 and we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 together and learn a few things about the way that God loves. So go ahead and locate that passage. Now just as just to let you know in advance, one of the things I like to do is if we have a whole passage, verses 1 through 6, is I'll, I'll read through a little bit of the passage, and then I'll talk a little bit about that, and then jump back into the passage. And so we'll go back and forth a little bit here this morning. So starting in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 3, it says, One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. Now, you guys probably know Moses, right? Like, you know the Sunday school lesson about who Moses is. This is the guy that goes to Pharaoh and says, hey, you got to let my people go, right? And then there's the 10 plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and the journey to the promised land. So if Moses' life was a feature film, we're looking at the prequel today, all right? So this is the pre-story of the big story of Moses' life. At this point in his story, Moses is very far from home. He's very far from the place that he was raised. But this is also several years before he would ultimately be used by God to deliver the Hebrew people out of Egypt. So Moses was walking in the wilderness. So the question is, what happened? How did we get here? Well, here's what happened. Moses was born a Hebrew, but then he was raised by Egyptians. And when he grew old enough he started to feel out of place amongst the Egyptians because he knew he wasn't like them. And so then he actually tried to help his people. And however misguided this is, the way he tried to help his people, the Hebrew people, is that he actually saw an Egyptian slave that was beating, or sorry, not an Egyptian slave, an Egyptian, uh, one of the Egyptians beating one of the Hebrew slaves. And so he came along and in his effort to get this Egyptian away from this Hebrew slave ends up killing the Egyptian. So he kills one of the Egyptians to help his people, the Hebrews. But the Hebrews actually turn against him and say, you're a murderer. So he doesn't feel in place with the Egyptians. And in fact, he knows I need to run for my life because I just took one of them out. 
But then also the very people he was trying to come to the defense of, they turned against him too. So his Hebrew people don't accept him. His Egyptian people don't accept him. He feels like an outsider. So he leaves the area. He goes out to the wilderness. And when he gets out to the wilderness, I think he was just trying to start over because he finds a wife and he started a family and he's tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. And now he is walking in the wilderness. So this is somebody that's raised by royalty in Egypt. And yet now he feels so disconnected from that family, so disconnected from his Hebrew family, that now he's walking through the wilderness. And I bet this is just me making a guess. I don't know this for certain. But my guess is that Moses was not just walking in a geographical wilderness. I think that personally and emotionally, he felt like he was walking in a wilderness too. Like he had no meaningful connection. He had his immediate family that I'm sure he felt connected to them. But as far as that larger family, he had no connection. He was walking in the wilderness. It wasn't The wilderness wasn't just a description of the geographical location. It was a description of how he also felt. He had no home. He was purposeless. He was drifting until here in verses 2 through 4, as the story continues. It says, There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Now part of this makes me laugh because when I read the way this is written here, I don't know if this is exactly the way Moses communicated it at that time, but the way it's recorded in Scripture here kind of makes me laugh, that it says, why isn't that bush burning up? And then he says, I must go see it. Like, is that how you would respond if you saw a bush that was eternally burning? Ah, there is a bush that's eternally burning. I must go see it. No, you'd be like, look at that bush over there. I'm telling you, it's been burning for 20 minutes and nobody seems to care. Like, what is happening with this bush? So he goes over and he takes a closer look. And when he gets closer, God's voice speaks to him out of the bush. Now that's what God's voice speaks to him out of the bush. And yet Moses responds, here I am. Here I am. Not a moment of hesitation, Not a, let me sprint away and go find my family and bring them all back. No, in that moment, he recognized God's voice was speaking to him. And he simply said, here I am. Here I am. Now notice what God does here, I think is so incredible and tells you so much about the personal nature of God and how intimately he cares about every one of us. He doesn't just say, hey you. He doesn't just start speaking out of the bush. His first two words are, Moses, Moses. He knew Moses by name. And he knows you by name. There's something significant about having your name be known, isn't there? There's something really significant about that. When you know someone well enough that they know your name, it helps you understand they're more intimately connected to me than the person I pass on the street, right? They know my name. There's power in having your name be known. A couple years back, I was working as a substitute teacher at Mechanicsburg Middle School, which is where my daughter Kenzie goes currently. 
And I was working as a substitute teacher, and the worst thing, the worst moment for any substitute teacher, maybe a few of you guys have done substitute teaching or guest teaching before, the worst moment is roll call, at least in my opinion. Like when you have to go through and check all of the names off of the list, because so many names I can't pronounce, right? Like I want to pronounce them correctly, but I just don't know. Now, some of the best teachers, maybe a few of you here are this kind of teacher. The best teachers will actually give you phonetic spellings for each of the names, so then you can nail every one of them. But this particular day, I didn't have phonetic spellings, and I came across a name, and it was V-A-D-A. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Like, how am I going to get this one right, right? Like, how do I know? Is it Vada? Is it Veda? Is it Vada? Like, I don't know. I had no idea. And so I just went with the one that I thought maybe it would be. And I said, Vada? And I just saw this girl look up at me with this like annoyed, frustrated look on her face. She doesn't even say here. She just goes, it's Veda. And I was like, sorry, substitute teacher here. I'm sorry. Right. So I subbed there a number of times over that semester. The next time she was in that classroom, you know, I remembered how to pronounce that name. So when it came time to do roll call, I did the smartest thing I could do. I had one of the kids do it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, When I got to her name on the list, you know, I very intentionally, I said, Veda. And she would never admit to this if you could ever talk to her. But I am telling you, I I saw the smallest smile just curl up in the corner of her lips that finally somebody got my name right. I mean, can you imagine? I'm sure it would be very difficult for anybody that has a name that's difficult to pronounce. Every substitute teacher, the start of every school year, every time you meet somebody new, that they're trying to get you to understand, just say my name the right way. So it has meaning when somebody knows you well enough so that they can address you by the right name. And I'm sure that had so much value for Moses. And I'm sure that's why Moses responded as he did. This wasn't just a voice calling out random noises or asking for someone to respond. It was a voice speaking from the bush that said, Moses, Moses. And immediately Moses responded to God calling out to him. See, in the terms of the day, he was no one significant. No one would have thought that this shepherd walking in the wilderness was significant in any way. He wasn't significant or important by the world's standards. And yet God had skipped over the pharaohs. He had skipped over the kings and the rulers and had come directly to Moses and said, I know your name. And you know what else? God knows you by name too. He knows you. He knows not just your name. He knows your identity. He knows who you are. You're not just a type or a category, or a statistic, or a demographic to him. You are you, and he knows you by name. He loves you exactly the way you are. And that's the second thing I want you to hear. In those moments where you're feeling stuck, wondering if God could really love you, you need to know this, that God says, I know you. I know you. David wrote in the Psalms, in Psalm 139, verses 14 through 16, he said, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. That's intimate. 
That's how God knows you before you were born. And as you live, he knows your present. He knows your future. He knows your skills and your talents. He knows your likes and your dislikes. He knows the things you love and the things you can't stand. He knows you by name. And today, he invites you into a moment. He invites you into this moment, just like he does here with Moses. So let's read on to verse 5. The Lord says, Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. You see, God knew his name, and this was the moment. This wasn't some faraway God. This wasn't some foreign God. This was the God of his ancestors. It's the very one he's been running from. God was saying to him, I am the God of your own fathers, Moses, your own flesh and blood, your own people. And so to Moses in that moment, it was like, I have a people. It was the reminder that he wasn't alone in this world, but God had called him out. God says, I know you by name. God knows your future. God knows your past. Moses has been running from his people, running from God. And now God was saying, I want to bring you back home. You have a family with me. Moses was invited to come back to a real and personal relationship with the one true God. You see, God had touched Moses in the place where he was hurting and invited him to come home. You know, that's how God approaches us most of the time too. God looks at your life and he often comes to those areas where you are most wounded, where you are most in pain, where you are hurting and you need a touch. Those are the places that he comes to. And you know why he comes to you in those places? It's because he knows that you don't have to stay there. He wants to pull you out of that place. He wants to remind you that you have a family and not just the physical people around you, but you are a part of the family of God. He invites you in to a relationship with you. He's a God who loves you. God invites you into a moment. He says, you don't have to pretend that those areas of shame aren't there. You don't have to pretend that the mistakes aren't there. He says, I just want you to talk openly and honestly with me. I want to visit the place where you feel the most guilty. I want to go to the place where you feel the most lost, the most alone, the most despairing. I want to go there with you because I can pull you out of there. You don't have to stay in that place. I want you to live and to thrive. I don't want you to be stuck or enchained to those old ways of thinking anymore, enslaved to those old things, to the things that have a stranglehold on you. God repays our failures with unexpected grace. That's the place that he meets you at today. No matter the mistakes you've made, he says, I extend unconditional love to you. And I invite you to come in and let's work through these areas of hurt and pain so that you can move forward a new person. You know, when you quietly whisper those prayers where you say, God, are you there? Like, are are you even aware of me anymore? Do you love me? He checks yes. He checks yes. He loves you. It does not matter what you've done. He loves you. He says, this is for you. Every one of us, we are imperfect people. We're imperfect people. And yet God has been relentlessly pursuing you since day one on earth to share life with you, 
to see the profound power it has for you when you embrace his love for you. Listen to this incredible description of how God feels about you from the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 17. It says this, For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. Focus on that word delight. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. Now listen to that same passage again, but let's frame it as if God is talking directly to you. Hear this being spoken from God directly to you. He says, I am the Lord your God and I am living among you. I am your mighty Savior. I delight in you with gladness, with my love. I will calm all your fears. I will rejoice over you with joyful songs. It's incredible to think that God feels this way about you, that he delights in you. He is with you. He knows you, and he delights in you. He doesn't just put up with you. He delights in you, and that's the last thing you need to remember when you feel stuck is that God says, I'm with you, I know you, but he also says, I delight in you. I delight in you. When we experience this genuine love from God in a real and a personal way, it's our natural response then to fall more in love with him. So we pray to the Lord as David did in Psalm 73, 25. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. So when God delights in us, the natural response is for us to desire him more than anything on earth. Now think about those words, desire you more than anything else, more than anything else. That's a strong desire. I mean, just think about for a moment, think about the things other than God that you desire. Think about those things. Like I desire good relationships with my kids. I desire to be a good husband. I desire to be a good uh, dad. And you know what else? I desire a rack of ribs cooked all day and served hot from my drum smoker. Like I desire that. It's delicious stuff. So these are things that I desire and they're good things, right? Like they're things that I desire that aren't in conflict with my desire for God. They're good things. So does God really expect me to give up my desires for these good things and only desire him? I think the answer to that is no. He doesn't ask you to give them up. Let's look real closely at what it said there. It said, I desire you more than anything on earth. So there's things I desire and they're good things. God doesn't say I have to give them up. He just says, I I need you to say, I desire you more. I desire you more. So it's okay to have other things that you desire. In fact, God created us so that we would desire good things, right? And so you have passions and desires for many things that are good for you, and they're good for you to enjoy. So maybe you love sports. You know what? God loves that you love sports. He made you that way. So it's okay for you to desire sports and to delight in the things that you do that bring you joy. Maybe for you it's music or reading or gaming or drawing. Maybe you love arts and crafts or you love scrapbooking or you love shopping at the mall. Anything that you love that isn't prohibited by the Bible is not only permissible, but it's actually recommended for you to enjoy. God wants you to enjoy those things. He doesn't ask you to give up your joys or your desires or your passions. I mean, I know for myself, I couldn't go a day without scrapbooking. I mean, it's just my life. Okay, that's not true, but 
or going to the mall with my friends. That's the other one that's really top of the list. He only asks that you let them take a back seat, right? Like they just take a back seat to your desire for him. He just wants us to desire him, to desire him more. Our natural response to his unconditional love is to desire him more than anything else. So you can love sports, but you can also still give up a day of playing basketball with friends so that you can help a neighbor clear out a flooded basement, right? You can let that take priority. You can love reading, but you can put your book down to spend time with a friend that obviously needs you. You can love spending time with your family, but you can also open your door to guests and invite them in to be a part of your life too. You can enjoy a cup of coffee at your favorite coffee shop, but sometimes skip it so that you can use that money to be a blessing to somebody else. So the bottom line is, it's okay to desire good things that bring you joy. They just shouldn't take priority over your desire to honor God with the way that you live. And if I'm completely honest with you, I'm not quite there yet. You know, there's times that I allow the things that I desire and things that I want to elevate over my desire for God. But you know what? God loves me anyway. And he loves you too. He knows that we're all a work in progress. And as I continue this relationship with God, my desire for him does grow more and more. And the same is true for you. You don't have to do anything to earn God's love. That's not what I'm saying at all. You already have it. You don't have to stay stuck. You just have to remember these three key phrases that God is saying to you. God is with you. God knows you. God delights in you. And as long as you trust him, trust that he loves you like that unconditionally, your relationship with him will deepen. Your love for him, your desire for him will continue to grow. You know, maybe you want to take these three statements, God is with you, God knows you, God delights in you. Maybe you want to write them down somewhere. Put them on your mirror, put them in your car, put them somewhere where you're going to see them daily this week and be reminded in those moments where you start feeling down about yourself or feeling bad about decisions that you've made, remind yourself that God is with you. And even with the mistakes, he knows you, he loves you, he takes delight in you. He truly enjoys watching you live. Live your life this week like someone who is loved by God unconditionally because you are. That's exactly who you are. He checks yes. He loves you and he checks yes. Let's pray together. God, we love you. But sometimes we do get overwhelmed by the mistakes that we make. Um, Because I know there's times where I pray and I say, God, okay, I'm not going to do this thing again. That then I make that same mistake. And so God, in those moments when we think we just, we have it all together, but then we fall back into those bad habits, those bad choices, when we hurt the people that we love, when it makes us wonder, you know, how a God that's incredible as you could actually continue to love us, even with all the mistakes we make. Like, next time we get in that moment, Lord, just remind us that you delight in us. Remind us that you know us, that you're intimately connected with us. The next time we get stuck in that way of thinking, remind us of this morning. Remind us of these truths that you spoke to us. Remind us that you're always with us. Remind us in our worst moments that you know us intimately and love us completely. And God, thank you so much that you don't just tolerate us, but you actually delight in us. You love us. You're actually happy and overjoyed about who we are. God, we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.